0: All right, good morning, church. So, we're going to study God's Word. I hope you got a Bible with you. Open it up to the Old Testament book of Jonah one more time to the book of Jonah, this time in chapter four. And uh, I hope that this series has been an encouragement to you these past few weeks, just seeing <clears throat> God's grace, His relentless grace in the life of a failed prophet in the way that he pursued the nation's kind of early form of the Great Commission as Jonah goes into all the world and proclaims the message that God gave him and the people repented. And so I hope that's been an encouragement to you. Here's where we're going next week, just a heads up. So we're wrapping it up this week, uh, Jonah chapter four. And then next week, we're gonna start a series in another short book. And it's the New Testament book of Jude. Jude is only one chapter. And the hope is that we can kind of see the the complementary relationship between the the compassion theme that rides through the book of Jonah and the courage and conviction theme that rides through the book of Jude. Short books, but punchy for the church. What does it look like to be a compassionate people in a fallen world? What does it look like to be a courageous uh, people contending for the truth? in a fallen world. So that's next week. I hope you'll join us for that. Um, But go ahead, if you're in Jonah chapter 4, I'm going to start reading beginning in verse 1, if you would follow along as I read God's word. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. So pause for just a moment in case you're just joining us. 120,000 Assyrians in Nineveh just repented And said, I'm sorry to God. And they want to follow him. And Jonah is greatly displeased in the first verse. And became furious. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord. Isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life From me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Now, God is going to ask three questions to Jonah. That's the first time he asks. Is it right for you to be angry? Verse 5 Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow? It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals." So after the massive revival that took place in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah 4 really ends with a major downer, right? I mean, this is not an impressive look for God's person, for God's man, for the, for the Old Testament prophet. I mean, Jonah is the first evangelist in history who preached and gave an altar call and prayed no one would come. He didn't want anyone to respond. He didn't want the people to repent. We see Jonah in a really unflattering light. Uh, one commentator uh, dubbed chapter four the pouting prophet because he sounds almost childish. He's over there crying in the corner. He's saying, just kill me now because these people received mercy. He's, he's almost childish. So if we wanted to retell the story, we're going to wrap up Jonah uh, for this week if we want to just retell the whole story and think, thinking of children if we wanted to tell it in the voice of uh, a preschooler maybe a four-year-old if we wanted the story to be really simple and just talk about what we've walked through in the story of Jonah it might go something like this here's my best effort so Jonah aboard the ship God I don't have a good feeling about the mission to Nineveh so I'm going to go to Spain for a bit Jonah inside the whale, so we fast forwarded. (laughs) Inside the whale, God, I'm sorry I disobeyed your call in my life. I was wrong. Thanks for saving me from drowning. Also, it smells awful in here. God, I forgive you, Jonah. Let's start over. And then the whale says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, And, and spits Jonah on the beach. And then Jonah's preaching. So he's standing in front of the Ninevites and he's preaching the word. God is mad at you, Nineveh, because you're the actual worst. And you'll all be dead in 40 days, actually 39 and a half days. Nineveh, we're sorry, God, and we're turning toward you now. It's why we've stopped our evil actions and put on these itchy clothes. Please show us mercy. And then God says, I forgive you, Nineveh. And then Jonah says, God, how could you? Just let me die. Right, this is not a flattering picture of of Jonah, There's a radio program, it's called This American Life, and sometime back they featured an episode that was entitled No Fair, Stories of Very Small Injustices and Also One Very Big One. So the the prologue of this particular episode was, the setting was a pre-K classroom, so 23 and four year olds or so are in this class, and the problem that they were trying to solve was constant tattling. So tattling had caught like wildfire and one kid started tattling and then it just, it was a chain reaction and it was taking up the whole class time for the teacher to hear the constant tattling that was going on. So the teacher came up with a solution, a brilliant solution, and she hooked up a, a toy phone on the wall and called it the tattle phone and she said, if you got some issue or some problem, go tell the tattle phone. She hooked it up to the wall, just a toy phone, and immediately the kids, with great enthusiasm, started lining up in front of the tattle phone. Well, one of the, one of the parents, Max, was a, was a kid in the class, and Max's dad is named David Kestenbaum, and he's the producer of this radio program, and David Kestenbaum said, this idea from this teacher is just an amazing idea, and he said, so he asked the teacher, he said, if I get permission from you and from the other parents, could I hook up a real phone and actually record what our kids are saying? And she said, yeah, if the parents are good with it. And so he went and asked all the parents, and and they all said yes. Some of them said, please do this. This is going to be golden, right? So so they actually hooked up a real phone, and when the kid went to the tattle phone, he picked it up, old-fashioned receiver phone kind of thing, picked it up, and they heard a recording that said, welcome to the tattle phone tell me everything after the beep. And then beep, and then you just hear, when you listen to the radio program, you hear one kid after another just telling all this stuff. It became, the radio announcer said, it became, quote, a container for all the little injustices that go on every day. And here's, here's when you listen to the recordings on the broadcast, here's what you hear, a sampling. Kid number one, Eli told me a lie. And then you hear the phone slam down. Kid number two, Seamus wasn't sharing with me, and I don't like it. And then the phone gets slammed down. Kid number six, Mom, please come pick me up. (laughs) And hi, Dad, I love you, bye. (laughs) Kid number nine, Ramon isn't listening to my teacher, Mr. Evans, but he's my favorite teacher. Hang up. Skipping to kid number 12, people are not sharing the tattle phone. (laughs) So at the end of all of this, uh, Kestenbaum sets up an interview with these kids and basically just asks them questions. What did you get out of this whole experience? And what was it like to have a tattle phone? And they said, it was awesome. One girl said, talking to the tattle phone, quote, was like eating ice cream. She said, it felt like eating ice cream. I'm calling the message tattletale Christianity and what I mean by that is there's a Christianity that loves to see the world get what's coming to it. That really wants to see that mean, nasty, bad, sinful world get God's judgment, desires that. And and Jonah 4, in a way, dramatizes what happens. It's not just a message that's relevant for ancient Israel, it's relevant for the church of today. It dramatizes what happens when the church wants to condemn the world while God is working to save the world. That's kind of the point, the the undercurrent underneath Jonah 4. It's what happens when the church wants to condemn the world while God is working to save the world. And I think we can come away with at least a few helpful handles to hold on to Jonah chapter 4 as it relates to living on mission in a world that needs the gospel. Number one, God doesn't just comfort, he exposes. God doesn't just comfort, he exposes. The reality is... A relationship with God, if you have a real relationship with God, is going to bring up areas in our lives that need change. Our lives, Christians' lives. We're going to be exposed to the light of God's Word. It's James in the New Testament, who said, when you stand in front of God's word, you're standing in front of a mirror that shows you everything that's going on, not on the outside, but on the inside. It's like an x-ray mirror. And he says, when you see what you see, don't turn around and forget what you saw. Humble yourself before the transforming power of God's word. What did the apostle Paul say? He said, the word is going to do a lot of things in our lives. If if we, if we humble ourselves before. He said, all scripture is breathed out for a number of purposes of God. It's breathed out and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You just think about that list of things that the word of God gets done in our lives and most of them aren't comfortable. Reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The training has to do with rigor and struggle and being brought to a point of tension, right? Correction and reproof means you're gonna have to turn in the other direction. God's word is gonna say, hey, hey, and it's gonna whistle and say, you're turning the wrong way again. (laughs) Turn back this way. God's word does that, and that's what God is doing to Jonah. He is giving Jonah a gift, and the gift is what we call conviction. He's saying, Jonah, you're not in a good place. Is it right, he asked him two times. Two out of the three questions are, hey, Jonah, stop and think for a second. Is it right that you're angry right now? Do you deserve to be angry right now? I just saved you from certain death when you rebelled against me, your king, and, and you're fresh out of the water, and you're already angry at the repentance of the people you were asked to preach to. You know, a lot of this Jonah 4 it hinges on the word that's used, the word that's translated appointed. It could also be translated provided. And you see that word appointed used all throughout Jonah. Actually, in chapter 1, God appointed a great fish. He provided a great fish. And then you see it here. You know, Jonah tries to build a shelter there in verse 5. To give himself shade from the noonday sun, but the, the shelter is obviously woefully inadequate because he rejoices when God provides this plant. Miraculously, God appoints a plant. You see that in verse six. The Lord God appointed a plant. Jonah falls in love with the plant because this plant probably climbs up the, the trellis, that sort of ramshackle sticks that Jonah had built, and it climbs up and over and it creates this, this lattice work of vine over Jonah. And he's enjoying shade and relief from the sun until God appoints something else. So God appoints the plant, and then God appoints, look at verse seven, a worm. God appointed a worm, and the worm eats the plant. And then God appoints a scorching, verse eight, a scorching wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much he almost fainted and wanted to die. So what's going on here? This is an acted parable. God is saying, I'm gonna show you on the outside what's going on on your inside. Matter of fact, there's some, There's a play on words that's going on here in Jonah chapter four because the word for Jonah's anger in verse four is the Hebrew word hot. It's the same word. So Jonah is hot under the beating sun and then he's relieved from the heat of the sun, but he's still sending plenty heat downrange toward Nineveh as he sits on the outskirts of town with his tattle phone in hand, dialing up and saying, let me tell you about these people, right? You still need to do what you said you would do. 40 days and they die. You still need to do it and I'm gonna give you reasons why. He's waiting on the outskirts of town. But here's the thing that God seems to be saying. He's exposing Jonah's heart and he's saying this. Jonah, you love the shade, don't you? But you don't love it when I give other people shade. Or more particularly, you won't let me give Assyrians shade. You won't let me give them relief from the heat of my wrath against human sin. You want relief. Matter of fact, you say you're ready to die the moment I remove your shade, but you want them to die. You're happy with them under the burning power of my judgment. You ever feel like church can be that way? You ever feel like the church is sort of on the outskirts of the world, looking in at the culture, tattletale phone in hand, dialed up to heaven saying, let me tell you what I'm seeing. And here's reasons why you need to bring that old, nasty, mean, unchristian world down yesterday. You ever heard that spirit in the church? Here's the thing for us to think about. God is not present in power when we, the church, see the world's sins but not our own have selective moral outrage toward the sins that aren't in the church but outside the church. You know, one of the primary descriptions of believers in the New Testament is that a believer is a person who walks out into the exposure of God's light because good things happen out there in the light. Bad things happen in the darkness when we cover and we hide. Good things happen when we confess and we humble ourselves before God and one another. You watch Jesus in the pages of the Gospels and the people for whom he reserves his strongest rebukes. Are church folks. He stands in front of Pharisees and teachers of the law and basically the first century pastors and they say, look at what's wrong with the world. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm seeing plenty wrong right here. Right here in front of me. He saves his seven woes. His most intense rebukes, the seven woes, are woes of judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you do this. Woe to you, scribes. It's, It's perfect seven judgments from Jesus against his people, the teachers. God's word is a mirror that shows us our flaws so we might be humbled and changed. That's what God wants his word to do, to expose our flaws so that we might be humbled and changed. Let me ask you, when's the last time that you read God's word or you heard God's word preached and the spirit uh, your inner person was saying, God, search me. Don't search somebody else. Search me, O oh God. Try me. Know my anxiety. See if there be, Psalm 139, if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Divide the bone and marrow with the scalpel of your word, show me what's going on in the inside, things that I can't see, pull up the mirror that shows me the interior of my life and change me by your word. The biblical doctrine of sin should never lead Christians to self-righteousness. It should lead us the other way. It should lead us, because what, what does the Bible say about our sin? It says even our righteousness is as filthy rags, we have no righteousness that could earn us any points in heaven, we have nothing with which to present ourselves before God, Augustine, the great theologian, maybe one of the greatest theologians of the first millennium, and Augustine said, "Even even my tears of repentance are stained with sin. Even when I repent, I repent with mixed motives. He says, I'm a bundle of contradictions. That's why he wrote this massive book called The Confessions. And in it, he's just saying, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and God, make it right. It's a classic. It's still being read today. The great Scottish theologian Robert Murray McShane said this, take this to heart, church. I have begun to see that the seeds of every conceivable sin remain in my heart. Look, if you believe that and I believe that, We will not sound like Jonah on the outskirts of town with our tattle phone in hand, telling on all the things that they're doing. We'll be too busy confessing our own sin, walking out into the light and saying, God have mercy on me, have mercy on me. God doesn't just comfort, he exposes. Number two, God isn't satisfied when we have right words with wrong hearts write words with wrong hearts. So Jonah is quoting scripture here. He's, he's a good Hebrew boy who grew up in rabbinical school learning the word of God, learning the Torah. And he knows that classic moment, 600 years before Jonah was alive, God reveals himself to Moses in a legendary epic moment. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, buckle in. I'm going to show you who I am in my character. My glory is going to pass before you. I'm going to preach a sermon on my character. And that's what God does. He tucks him into the side of a rock. And as his glory passes by, here's what God says. The Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Just stop there for a second and look down in verse two. When Jonah says, that's why I fled to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah quotes scripture. He says, I know what happened to Moses, but I don't have to like it. And he's almost owning it in that very same sense. He says, I want to die because you're so slow to bring the heat down on these evil Ninevites. It's interesting. The contrast, there's almost irony there. Jonah ministers in the most unrighteous city in 8th century B.C. world, Nineveh. And then Jesus comes hundreds of years later, and he ministers in the most righteous city of his day, Jerusalem, and the effects of those ministries are completely the opposite effects. Jonah preaches to a bunch of pagan Ninevites, and they all believe, and they all repent, and Jesus preaches to a bunch of people holding their Bibles, and what does the scripture say when it summarizes the ministry of Jesus? He came to his own, but his own would not receive him not interested in handouts, move along. That's what God's people said when Jesus Christ the Son came. And what does Jesus do when you catch him later in the Gospels? And you can almost picture him there looking out on the outskirts of Jerusalem holding his arms out and he says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't come. I said, come to me and find life and life abundantly. You wouldn't come when I invited you to come. And Jesus weeps over the lack of repentance in Jerusalem. And you see the absolute contrast between Jesus and Jonah here in our notes. The contrast, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because the people wouldn't repent. Jonah weeps over Nineveh because they did. He did not want them to find mercy. He wanted them exposed to the sun the burning sun and scorching heat of God's judgment against their sins. Here's a point for us to take home. The truth is we often want God to be like us, right? We want God to be like us. How do we know we've remade God in our own image? You know you've remade God in your own image when he hates the same people you hate. But there are people that in our culture, if we're not careful, We love to hate and we love to think God hates the exact same people I hate and that's what makes us have a special handshake together. You can see the problem of Jonah chapter four by just study the language of emotion that's used in Jonah four. So I I printed it out and just looked at it and I took a red pen and a blue pen. I took a red pen and highlighted all the words that talk about Jonah's emotion and then all the words that talk about God's feelings or God's emotion and here's, here's what you see. Verse one. I know you don't have red pens and blue pens necessarily, but here's what happened. Verse one, Jonah was, red pen, greatly displeased and furious. Verse two, God is, blue pen, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and relents from sending disaster. Verse four, God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be, red pen, angry? Verse nine, God asks again about Jonah's anger and Jonah says, yes, it's right to be, red pen, angry I'm angry enough to die and then verse 10 and 11 God says if you cared about a plant that you didn't make you didn't create the plant it was here one night and it was gone the next morning if you cared about a plant because it brought you joy and relief may I not care blue pen it's, it's the word that's used in Hebrew for, for compassion. May I not show compassion? May I not show pity toward people I made? I made them for my glory. You didn't make, you're talking about a plant. You're weeping over a plant. You want to die because the plant's gone. I made th- these people. They're not plants. It's 120,000 Ninevites, and I know them all by name. Can I not show compassion for them? And it brings us to the last point, number three. God will untwist our priorities to turn us toward his mission. God will untwist our priorities to turn us toward his mission. You know, the difference between this prophetic book and all the other prophetic books in the Old Testament is the other prophetic books aren't about the prophet. There's precious little about the prophet himself in those books. It's all about what the prophet is saying who cares who he is, when he says, thus saith the Lord, everybody listen. Let's listen to the message of the prophet. In Jonah, it's about the prophet. It's not just about his message. We only get six words of what his message actually was. They just summarize what he said. But we're trained in on how he acts. The life of the prophet is before us here. And in a way, if you've read the New Testament, in the New Testament, there's a famous story, often called the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie where one person plays two different characters, like The Prestige, or some other movie where one person is playing two different roles. Um in a way, there's a drama that's unfolding in the book of Jonah, and Jonah plays two parts, and it's, it's an early viewing of the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15, and Jonah plays the younger brother in chapters one and two, and then he goes behind set, and he changes his clothes, and he comes out, and he plays the older brother, in chapter three and chapter four. He's the younger brother who God says go east and he goes west and he disobeys the will of God. He goes AWOL and then God brings him back and he comes to a place of repentance and then he plays the older brother who crosses his arms when God saves the world. When God brings an entire city, including the king to its knees and, and it's just like in Luke chapter 15, the older brother's there and he sees the younger brother coming from afar and his dad runs out to reach him, to meet him on the road and the dad says, fire up the music, fire up the grill, kill the fatted calf, get the ring, get the shoes, like we're gonna party tonight, like it's going out of style, right? And that's, that's what the father says and what's the, what's the older brother doing? The music cranks up and he won't dance. The older brother will not dance, he's over there, arms crossed. And that's Jonah on the outskirts of Nineveh, arms crossed, the music's playing and he will not dance. You know, God is not afraid to put embarrassing stories in the Bible about us, about his people and about how stingy we are with grace. Happens so often in God's word. Here's the thing, why does God put those stories about his own children in the Bible? This point for us, God's priority is to save the lost, not save our image. But God will never give up on the church, but he will not mask our sins. He will will drag them out into the light so that we can be changed and humbled. You know, when sin is revealed in the church, what do we see? What have we been seeing here recently for years now? We've been seeing the church when sins of the church are exposed, sins of church leaders are exposed, organizations are exposed, organization and everybody shuts it down. Everybody cover it up. Everybody circle the wagons. Let's hide this from the world. You know, what grieves God's heart is the sin that happened, not the fact that it's out in the light. God is light. <laughs> God loves light, God loves truth, God knows good things happen when we get out here in the open. Let's get out here where we can deal, where I can heal, where I can transform. Look, we do the advancement of the gospel no favors by burying the truth. That we are a royal mess, (laughs) his people. We are, one of the best books on preaching I've ever read is this book. It's called Spirit Empowered Preaching. it's written many years ago. The author of this book a few years ago confessed uh, that he had committed adultery. And uh, I've read a lot of confessions. I'm sure you have as well. A lot of confessions ring hollow, don't they? Because they're, they're filled with blame-shifting language. They're filled with minimization and rationalization and that sort of thing. And you start to hear those buzzwords that sort of soften the impact of the egregious thing that was done. Um, This is the statement that he read to his congregation. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but it all sounds like this. Here's what he wrote. I confess this sin and take full responsibility for it. There are no justifications, excuses, or rationalizations for my behavior. I, in acts of idolatry, chose sin over God. I am profoundly ashamed at the enormity of my rebellion, as well as the hypocrisy of exercising ministry while cloaking my sin in the shadows. And he goes on just like that, getting low, humbling himself in line after line. And then at the end, he has a number of pleas that he brings before the congregation. He says, number one, please direct your anger and frustration at me while extending love and support to my children who have responded to my repentance and confession with kindness and compassion, and especially to my wife. Two, please pray for the elders of Trinity Church. Three, please pray for the congregation of Trinity Church. Number four, never doubt the gospel in our great savior, Jesus Christ. I have failed you profoundly, my dear friends, and I do plead for your forgiveness. I love you, albeit with a love that has been marred by great failure, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will never fail you. Even when sin has done its worst, God is able to redeem. He is able to write redemption on the walls. But we have to come out into the light. We have to humble ourselves, we have to own up. Not keeping up appearances, you know I wonder if, if God on high walks toward the church of Brook Hills with a scalpel in hand, are we humble enough to say, cut as deep as you need to cut. As long as it means, we'll serve you faithfully. carve out the places that we've been hiding our sin. Look, the the best version of the church of Brook Hills is the one where we're repenting is the one where we're humble before God, where we are aware of our sin, where we are amazed by God's mercy, where we rehearse and remember the story of the gospel that the burning sun of divine judgment was bearing down on you and me in our sin, and that judgment was averted because we found shade beneath the cross of Jesus Christ. We are hidden in the shadow of the cross where there is relief. That's our story. (laughs) We celebrate that every single Sunday. And even this morning, you can find shade in Christ if you will humble yourself and repent and run and fall into his waiting arms of mercy. Look, if that message, and that's the message, right? If that message gets into our bloodstream, we won't be angry prophets, tattletale phone in hand, telling on all the things that we can't imagine that are happening before our eyes. Look, unlike Jonah, If we weep, let it be because we long to see so many more saved. That's not why Joan is weeping, but if we weep, let's weep because we long to see so many more saved. Look, we got a footprint here in the city of Birmingham. Let's use it. Let's raise up disciples and disciple the next generation and teach our kids to love Jesus. Let's let's be equipped for ministry in our city and all around the world. Let's pray for our laborers who we've sent to the other side of the world among the least reached places in the world. Let's pray for more laborers. Look, our building construction project is almost done. I get so excited, I drive past that thing and I extend my hand and I pray, God, use what happens here on our campus May the children that meet on that second floor be arrested by the gospel, totally transformed to persevere for their whole life to live for the glory that matters the most. Would you join me in praying for that, working toward that, laboring toward that? And if we rejoice, let it be because God is bringing in a harvest we've prayed and labored for. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Jonah didn't get the memo. Jonah, 120,000 people just repented. The music is starting. Why aren't you dancing? <laughs> heaven is dancing. It's time for earth to reflect heaven. Heaven. Instead Jonah grabs the title phone, right? These three questions that are asked in verse four and nine and 11, they aren't just rhetorical questions, they are surgical questions. That, those questions are asked, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Is it wrong for me to show compassion? Those questions are surgical questions. They are untwisting the prophet and turning him in the direction of mission. They're gonna untwist the church I hope they're untwisting me and you, his people, this morning to have a passion for the nations, to have compassion for the broken. God is sovereign all over the book of Jonah. The capstone statement in Jonah is chapter two, verse nine. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this same God is sovereign over us. He's sovereign over our zip code, 35242. He's sovereign over the city of Birmingham and over all the nations. And here's what that sovereign God intends to do. He said, Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's gonna use his church to reach the nations and to pack the new Jerusalem with with sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That sovereign God is doing that work in the world. And if the church isn't broken enough to want the world to be saved, he'll break it. And then he'll use us. (laughs) He will use cracked pots to pour fresh water over the nations and over this city. I read the book of Jonah and it reignites in me a passion for the Great Commission. This book, the undercurrent of it, is an invitation to be all in for the global purpose of global blessing through Christ. And if you and I sign on anew, look, we're gonna have more chances to die to our self-interest than we'd ever want, right? But if we're humble, and if we faithfully proclaim his word and we walk in the light, who knows what glorious things God may do in this city and in the world for the glory of his name. May we be faithful.